Hello everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. When you look at our country at the eve of World War I, what you notice is a country that is essentially transitioning from a predominantly rural base to not a predominantly industrial base, but a more hybridized model of industrialization and rural sort of populations. Now, with the industrialization comes the city, because it's important to remember that basically factories in the countryside um, essentially was essentially not anything that anybody had thought of until later and certainly at that point you mainly had factories in city centers and a lot of those factories were worked by the children of immigrants or by immigrants themselves on the eve of world war one the american city was viewed as something of an island of suspicion in a basically an oasis of bucolic purity at least by a lot of people living in the countryside in America. And in few places was that seen as readily as it was seen in Philadelphia. Now, you could say New York was the same way, but Philadelphia, I really believe, had some some serious issues with it as far as its population. When you look at a map, there's something that you notice with Philadelphia and indeed with Baltimore that you don't really see with other major American cities. Philadelphia and Baltimore were cities essentially sitting in the, uh, not quite the foothills of Appalachian uh, America, but certainly in the, in the footprint of Appalachian America. They would have had a lot of their white population would have been coming from Appalachia. Around the time of World War One was something we like to call the Billy Migration. Now, what exactly was the Billy Migration? The Billy Migration was this phenomenon wherein basically people, hillbillies essentially, but people from Appalachia, and not even Appalachia really when you look at it, but people from the American countryside, started flowing into the American city. That started really after the Civil War, but around about 1900 or 1910 or so, it really, really picked up. And on the eve of World War I, it basically turned to a flood, which didn't really let up technically even now to the present day excepting for possibly the coronavirus. But the interesting thing about this is that really and truly you can go read in college textbooks and history textbooks in some of the best colleges in America that the belly migration essentially ended after, say, the 60s or maybe a little bit before that. But in truth, if you actually look and you see what's going on in our society... I would question whether or not that actually is true. Now, again, let me let me say this. 
that the Billy migration is actually an official term. I'm not actually trying to denigrate anybody's ancestry. In fact, you know, my people, my mother's people are from Appalachia. And indeed, according to the historical definition of what this is, you might say my father's people are as well. So I don't, I'm not trying to denigrate anybody's ancestry. I'm, I'm simply saying what the historians call it. Now, here's the thing about the Billy migration, though. Is on the eve of World War One, it really did sort of bring all these young men, especially. But in the case of Philadelphia, not only did it bring young men, but it brought entire families in from, say, the Appalachian ranges in Pennsylvania and Maryland and beyond that. And the thing you got to remember is that in a lot of places, the, the Billy migration was young working age men and they were going to work in factories or to somehow find their fortune in the American city. But in Philadelphia, it seems the idea was to settle. And the thing about Philadelphia, and I can sort of sympathize with this today because I live in one of the fastest growing places in the Americas. So I can kind of sympathize with this. Uh, but essentially, Philadelphia was growing by leaps and bounds. You had farms that were becoming part of this urban center uh, within about five or ten years or even sooner than that. But you didn't really have sort of the same, um, you know, the idea about hygiene or the idea that we need to pick the, the streets up or we need to keep raw sewage out of the streets, things like that. And what everybody as far back as Loring Milner would say about the Spanish flu was the Spanish flu proliferated in situations of filth. And what I've told you about San Francisco is basically really, really effective here in, the, in that the Spanish flu came into a situation in Philadelphia it was already underserved by garbage and city services, which were intentionally hobbled, actually, by the political machine of the day to a, to a disastrous effect. One of the reasons they did that was they wanted to create a dependent class, and in this case it was the Republican Party, but the Republican machine. They wanted to create a dependent class of people who would vote for them based on, uh, you know, you provided me with food, literal baskets of food, or like a job for your child or your husband, or you'd look the other way if your husband was not qualified or your kid was not qualified. And in fact, this actually is a good time as any to bring up a, a very uh, important sort of reality in, I guess, why people in the North, not so much in the South, but why people in the North would vote one party or the other, especially in urban areas. And that was because the party itself, actually the machine, would benefit the families, would benefit the voters of that party. So you voted Republican if you were in Philadelphia because 
this party would provide your family with, with food or with a job of some type or other. And you see this really in Philadelphia that the man in charge of this machine in Philadelphia was, was very much somebody who was constantly at war with who, with people whom he thought were his betters, the, the Whartons and the Biddles in Philadelphia were the upper crust money society. This Republican machine in Philadelphia was run by Edwin and William Vare. Their Vare brothers were a product of the newness of Philadelphia, the relative newness, I should say. They grew up on a farm in what would later become South Philadelphia, and in fact their base essentially was in South Philadelphia. Now this was before, at least the Vare brothers grew up, sort of before the the Italian immigrants and the German immigrants basically got to Philadelphia and made South Philadelphia what it traditionally is thought of by people today. The thing that you need to understand about the Vare brothers is they were incredibly corrupt by, I guess, by modern standards. Now, why do I bring up the Billy migration when I talk about the podcast, when I talk on the podcast about the Spanish flu and COVID-19. The reason why is when you look at the Billy migration, the, the historiography of the Billy migration, the thing that basically people leave out is what they leave out is what was the force behind what essentially was this mass migration of humans into a city. Because remember, the American economy prior to the 20th prior to the 20th century was essentially not really an economy of urban basically urban endeavor although it certainly was i mean our country was basically had a lot of its wealth tied up in agricultural products so what exactly kicked off the billy migration well, one of the things I've been thinking, and I've been thinking this because I've been doing the Spanish flu, was when you look at the Spanish flu, the, be- the breadbasket of America, the Midwest, and indeed the South, but especially, famously, the Midwest, was hit very, very hard by something that modern folks, modern virologists, etc., would would look at and say, this could possibly be the Spanish flu. Because remember, I've said a lot that if you want to hide a Spanish flu death, the way to do that is to write down that they had the cold or whatever when they passed away. And some of this might not be hiding. Some of it might actually be ignorance because, and we're going to see this here in this episode a lot, the more qualified you were as a doctor the more likely it was that you were in Germany or that you essentially were in France or tied up in some way in a coastal American city with the war effort because the thing Wilson wanted to do was go into total war with his hated enemy, the Germans. Now, as an added sort of weirdness about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania had always had a large group of Germans living within it. And this was also true in Pens- in Philadelphia. Think about it. When you have a large group of 
immigrants or a large group of people in a state, it would make sense that a lot of those people would live in the biggest city in the state. So essentially, Philadelphia was basically sort of this island of, of German and also of also sort of the people from Appalachia. And because the folks in Appalachia basically interpolated or I guess selected the Germans into a white sort of cohort where they didn't do that with, say, the Italians, the Germans and the basically Appalachians would sort of, you know, get together and socialize and also sort of intermarry and interbreed and that sort of thing. So the thing you have to understand here is that you had this cross-cultural situation between essentially the German folk and essentially the Appalachian folk. Now, the thing you also need to understand is one of the reasons that Philadelphia was set up for basically an invasion of the virus, that is the flu virus, was that it was also a naval hub. Now, it's settled history that one of the major ways in which the Spanish flu came into the city of Philadelphia was through a naval transport from Boston with 300 sailors on it. A huge percentage of those sailors already had the flu. And, of course, they descended into a city that had very little housing, very little cheap available housing, Anyway, so a lot of these people had to do what was very common in Philadelphia at the time, which was to board with other families. Strangely, today, what they would do is, essentially, there was sort of this informal, I guess you'd say, network of how to get a house, especially if you were white. And the way to get a house was you would go to the Boy Scouts, and they would go around and they would ba basically look for a family to you, for you to lodge with. Now, imagine, if you will, a soldier, a young soldier, going into a family. Now, the family might itself not be, you know, a long-arrived or long-lived resident of Philadelphia. And in a lot of cases, you had these people from the, essentially the Midwest, uh, you know, the Midwest or, say, Appalachia, that might not have been aware of um, cleanliness practices when it comes to cleaning laundry. And the reason I bring that up is, even before the reappraisal of the Spanish flu, the thing you have to understand is that Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Southeast Pennsylvania, was nailed by the Spanish flu, nailed very, very hard by the Spanish flu. And so historians want to look at why. And one of the reasons that historians have sort of traditionally latched onto, and actually, I know I'm sort of reappraising the Spanish flu here, but one of the things that historians look at, and I think I agree with them on, is that most of your citizens of Philadelphia were having to live with families who themselves were not long residents of Philadelphia. And so they weren't attached to the network of washerwomen that would have been in a lot of American cities at that time. 
but also they might not have been aware of of hygiene habits because they were basically backcountry people. They were of backcountry stock. The Vair machine was very much, essentially, you might want to say, opposed to cleanliness. Vair himself, that is Edwin Vair, was somebody who essentially was somebody who was paid $5 million at a time when um, living comfortably in 1917 would have been $3,000 a year in, in Philadelphia. So he was very wealthy. He had all the contracts essentially for sanitation, but sewer would run in you know the streets, and especially in his base of South Philadelphia. And also, they were building Philadelphia out so fast in the newer areas of town that they really didn't know about or care about sanitation too much, especially in some of the more immigrant neighborhoods and especially also in some of the more Appalachian neighborhoods because, and here's something really strange, a lot of these people saw the Appalachians and the immigrants, that is, the Italians, etc., as sort of the same, cut of the same cloth, if you will. In other words, a pox on both of your houses, please go away, kind of thing. So, you know, again, one of the things that we learned, we, they learned from the Spanish flu, was the importance of public cleanliness, from washing your hands to running water. This was learned, essentially, because of the Spanish flu. When modern people look at the Spanish flu, the thing they notice, the thing that they notice more than anything, when you look at, say, the declared or sanctified Spanish flu deaths, is a lot of them that were tied to the military came out of the Great Lakes Naval Station in the Chicago area. So what would happen would be that you had, basically, they would go to Chicago, and then they would take their Spanish flu to Boston, and then they took it finally to Philadelphia. Now, when they took it to Philadelphia, it met up with other people who had the Spanish flu, who probably we now believe came in from Appalachia or the Midwest. What happens when the flu virus, when any virus really, meets up with itself and becomes endemic in a community is it changes. Now, I've said this before, but viruses essentially change every two weeks. And so what happened in Philadelphia was the flu became strong and it became something that was different in some ways, we now think, from flu in New York or from Boston or Chicago and probably probably even, say, for example, in San Francisco, which weirdly essentially escaped, for the most part, previous historical appraisals of the flu, at least to the extent that it probably deserves reappraisal today because, like I said earlier, so many people died of something that was probably the flu in San Francisco. But anyway... So what had happened was the flu essentially changed in Philadelphia and it got into a very, very dirty city 
because Vare essentially was, even though he was paid quite lavishly, was essentially not picking up the trash. He was not, you know, treating the water or doing anything with the sewer really at all. And so essentially the military people and what public health experts there were were left on their own to work around the government instead of with the government in Philadelphia. In fact, both there, who ran the political machine, as well as the mayor of Philadelphia, as well as all the basically official apparatus of the mayor, essentially denied that the Spanish flu was in Philadelphia. And then when it became too obvious that it was in Philadelphia, they then denied that it, it would affect the desirable people. Now again, here we see this antiquated idea that virus only infects certain undesirable people. At this point, it becomes apparent to modern people studying it that not every government doctor, not every military doctor on the ground in America still subscribe to that because the military doctors in Philadelphia certainly were aware that it was affecting, say, Italians or Irish or just anybody blacks, you name it. And so what they would do is not only would they treat the soldiers who happened to come into their installations, but they would do what they could in a very heroic effort, I really believe, to treat the locals whom they happened to come upon. And this had some sort of effect in the community because by 18, by 1918, the people coming into the, basically you had civilians bravely coming on to government installations asking to be treated, and a lot of them were. And I think that's very brave because it countermanded essentially what the War Department and Woodrow Wilson wanted the army to do. Remember that the military was in a total war with Germany, so they wouldn't have had time. So the official thought was they wouldn't have had time to deal with, say, the civilian population. But at least the doctors on the ground or the doctors on the ground in Philadelphia were thinking of these people as human beings going through a pandemic and not just as inconvenient patients. And I think they need to be lauded for that, you know, 102 years later. The most remarkable thing about the civilian population of Philadelphia willing to take the virus seriously, that is the flu virus, seriously, was that the media in Philadelphia at the time was downplaying the virus at the behest of Vare as well as the mayor of Philadelphia to the point where they were reminding people in editorials that the virus actually couldn't kill people. Because remember at that point, people, at least the received wisdom was that the flu virus could not kill people. Indeed, every... Um, essentially every flu death in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania that was recorded was recorded either by rogue city doctors or 
by people in the military installations in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they were doing it against the orders of the U.S. military. That's amazing that these doctors really did see this as a, as a very serious health risk and that they needed to, in a day and age where, you know, jobs were hard to come by because remember, a doctor back then was a specialist position and also there was essentially a civilian recession going on in World War One because so much of the economy was geared towards fighting a war in essentially Europe. Remember that these doctors were braving unemployment at a time when there was no unemployment insurance, at a time when the New Deal was, you know, several, basically a decade and a half down the road, essentially. They were essentially risking starvation to record a virus, to record a virus's toll. And that's sort of amazing to me. It was a campaign to bring money into the war effort called the Liberty Loan, which would basically bring the flu into prime time in Philadelphia, if you will. What this means is, what I'm essentially saying, is that what would happen would be you would take something that was bubbling under the surface, because remember, you had essentially filthy people living with soldiers, in a, in a very informal way, in a situation where there was basically raw sewage running through the streets, and essentially your public works commissioner in Philadelphia was not essentially willing to do his job. So what would bring this into, I guess, the public consciousness in a serious way was the Liberty Loan Campaign. Now, it's important to understand that virtually not every doctor but a lot of doctors were writing there and also writing the mayor saying that, hey, this shouldn't happen because obviously we're essentially begging for this flu to essentially erupt. What has been lost to history, essentially, is whether or not there, who really ran the city, whether or not there actually believed that the virus was dangerous or was he just, you know, a public persona of somebody that thought the virus wasn't dangerous? Because what happened was that you took a sick population and put them outside, and essentially this got a lot of people together and created basically a super spreader event. What happened next was why we say that Philadelphia was hit so hard by the Spanish flu. The virus takes 24 to 72 hours to manifest in a patient. 72 hours after the virus had its super spreader event, the already stressed and strained hospital system of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania got even more so. People were dying on the floor. People were waiting for other people to die so they could take over the beds. People were dying in churches and schools because the hospitals were totally overwhelmed. It was a scene that passed into lore in the city of Philadelphia. People remember it even in 2020 today. It was so horrible. It was made all the worse because Vare and the other city fathers essentially never relented from the idea that 
the virus would not kill any but the so-called undesirable. Rogue public health officials in the city of Philadelphia were sending out ominous cables to their colleagues all across the country that essentially Philadelphia was endemic with the flu virus at a level that one finds at naval installations all over the country. That should be shocking to people because at this point you were getting some doctors, yes, that were willing to say that pneumonia might be the Spanish flu. But it wasn't to what it is today. It wasn't to the level that it is today by any means. But Philadelphia is one of these cities that you have to look at, even at the time, as somewhere that the virus really had a foothold. And you see it was basically because of a perfect storm of basically terrible public health, terrible sanitation, and also ready, willing, and able on the part of the leadership to to basically say that essentially only undesirables could get the flu. And it's interesting to think that because, first of all, I mean, the list of undesirable people in 1918, at least you know, in so-called polite society, involved a whole lot of folks. So that's fascinating to think that there might be people that had the flu, that they knew had the flu, that they were deliberately not examining or whatever in order to fit some sort of narrative as to who the flu impacted and affected. It's fascinating to think that this was willful right up until the very end. It's, I think, equally fascinating today to realize that Philadelphia was hit both by the flu and by willful incompetence on the part of its leadership, which might not have actually been incompetence at all, but just refusal, I guess, to, I guess, to care about the welfare of your citizenry. It's important to remember that in a pandemic, you're no healthier than the least among you because everybody encounters everybody, or at least that's the theory. Okay, so with that in mind, I would like to tell everybody that I'm having a good day and that I hope you are too. Alrighty, I'll see you later. Bye-bye.